Hello there. Happy New Year. This is Randy Ham, one of the pastors here at Vernon First Baptist Church. And it is my privilege to welcome you back to our Revelation series as we continue on. And we are jumping in with Revelation 6. If you remember before Christmas, we had talked about Revelation 4 and 5, a couple of highlights of Scripture, those two chapters. And now we move into 6 and beyond, which are often perceived as to happen sometime in the future. But is that how the early church understood them? We want to take a look at what they would have understood. How would this have affected them um, and what this apostle John, the pastor John, what he was hoping to achieve as he shared this vision from Jesus, this revelation of Jesus to the church in that day, and then what we can receive from it. So join us on this journey as we continue on in the revelation of Jesus. Thank you so much, Grace. What a privilege to be working with her as a part of our pastoral team. Um, I'm so excited for the team that God has brought us here as we move forward. And others who are, are thinking of different ministries and, and joining in. Um, I'm really excited about this year and all that God has for us. I really am. Even if we're going to be wading through the rest of Revelation. I know some have a little bit of trepidation about that. Um, I know uh, maybe you've heard the story of this one little boy went to visit a friend's house, and he found his friend's pious grandmother always deeply engrossed in her Bible, diving right in, always in there. And finally, after a number of visits, curiosity got the better of him, and he asked, he says, so why, why does your grandma always read the Bible so much? And his friend said, I'm not so sure, but I think she's cramming for her finals. She keeps saying, the end is near. And sometimes I've been hearing that around. Uh, you stop at a store and you, if someone finds out you're a pastor and they might say, well, pastor, the end is near. In fact, for over 100 years, a number of Christians have read the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ a little bit more as an end times calculator. And sometimes... As we look uh, today in Revelation 6, from this point on is often where people start to look at it that way. And sometimes it's gotten us into a little bit of trouble. You may have seen more than one newspaper comic like this, where someone will say, the end is, and we say a date. Oh, scratch that date. Then someone says this date. Oh, scratch that date. It came and went. Oh, how about this date? And then you can just end up, the end is near. Because we're not always quite sure, but some people, some people feel pretty confident about it. And even a guy that usually has his, had his head on his shoulders, quite diplomatic, mild-mannered often, a man like Billy Graham, the Reverend Billy Graham, he got caught up on it. He said this back in, in well, let me just say this first. This is in 49, 1949, young Billy Graham. Two days after it had become public that the Soviet Union had success, successfully 
detonated a nuclear bomb. Billy Graham reached out over, over from his microphone, grabbing, in one sense, grabbing Los Angeles by the throat, calling it to repent or else, and he said this, Russia has now exploded an atomic bomb. An arms race is driving us madly towards destruction. I am persuaded that time is desperately short. And only a year later, in 1950, he said, I'm revising my figures. Last year in Los Angeles, I thought we had at least five years. Now it looks like just two years. And then the end. Well, he got that one wrong. And it's happened before. I know that I love the music of Larry Norman. So does uh, Chuck. He had this song. He wrote a song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. And it played on the soundtrack to a specific movie. Can anyone name the movie? A Thief in the Night, which you can get along with its sequels in this Handy Collectors series. I didn't get the price. Not sure if you... Uh, would want it, order it, but it was released in a wonderful year, 1972. Well, great year. I was born that year, in case you wonder. And I remember watching it at our church only a few years later. Only a few years later. And in some ways, it scared the hell out of me as I thought, I don't want to be left behind. I, ah. Anyone else experience that in movies or books like that? A number of preachers, a number of books, songs, and movies have all sought to say that chapter 6 and following of the book that we are studying, the revelation of Jesus, is going to be lived out sometime in the future. And many would say, any day now. And they've been saying that for a number of years. And though I would not argue with the truth that Jesus is coming back, clearly outlined in Scripture, 100%, even how we sang it so beautifully, when He comes at last, to put all things to right, I will say that we can tend to lose sight of the unveiling of Jesus in these passages as we begin to speculate and use this as an end Times calculator. Is Revelation a future planner that outlines all that is to come? Well, a great question to ask if we're wondering that is was it that to the original recipients? This was a vision given to John, who was a pastor, pastor of these churches, the early church, and he had a pastor's heart. And this vision was given to him to pass on to them. So how would they have received it? So far we've seen the very intentional focus of this book on the person of Jesus. It's a revelation of Jesus, from Jesus, and about Jesus. And we'll see him go through a few different costume changes throughout this revelation, this Apocalypse. And we've also seen that apocalypse is not a bad thing, but it's a good thing. Do you remember that? Something that the early church would have been excited to hear. An unveiling, a pulling back of 
the mist around us to see what is really going on. A revealing, a true revelation. And it brought them hope and encouragement. It wasn't for them about dread and doom. And it helped them love Jesus more. And that's what it offers us today, too. So we're going to read our passage, Revelation 6, in three parts. And I invite you to stand just for this first one with me, if you are able, for this first reading. And Helena, yes, please. Hear the word of God. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. And let's pray as we dive into this together. Jesus, we want to see you through your word. We want to see you, the living word. So reveal yourself to us again today. Bring us your light and life, your truth and your holiness as we read your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I alluded a little bit at the start, there is debate as to how to read this passage. If you frame this within a certain understanding, it is all in the future, to come one day as a sign of the end. And this has become a popular belief among many Christians, but is not the only belief or the historical view. It's only been popular for a little over 100 years, in fact. The majority of theologians and pastors throughout history would hold that the Apostle John is being shown a vision of what is happening in the world around him. So that as a loving pastor, he could pass on to his churches this revelation, this unveiling, so that they can be encouraged and inspired to continue on in their faith. Well, what use would be a vision 
to them that would not be fulfilled for thousands of years. Though the Revelation clearly says there will be images of what is to come, the genre of apocalyptic literature often used in Scripture and in, and in their day, more than just what's in Scripture, would often blend that which is currently happening with promises of the future. After reading about these four horsemen and then viewing one news broadcast or reading one newspaper, it'd be hard to argue that these horsemen are only in the future and not in some way currently released on earth. The early church would understand these four riders within their context. And they would say, quite clearly as they heard this, read out, and it's entirely that the horsemen are riding right now. That this is a current thing. In fact, for the first 150 years of church history, the majority view was that the first horseman, the, the rider on the white horse, with the crown and the bow, that that rider was Jesus. I'm not sure if you've heard that. Some still hold that view today, that Jesus is the four horsemen riding out of the scroll of history or of destiny with bow in hand, conquering in the name of the gospel, the good news, in spite of what it seems. Though I will say the majority of commentators, theologians today would say that the four horsemen ride together as symbols of imperial conquest, war, economic disaster, and ultimately death through these other three. And I want us to, to remember the main theme of this book. The main theme is the unveiling of Jesus, that it's a revelation of Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, our anointed King. And if we remember that, what do we see here? Now, the early church saw Jesus riding out first, the kingdom of heaven coming, even when there are other riders loose on the earth. But even if the first horseman was not meant to be Jesus, do we remember who is holding the scroll and opening the seals? It is the Lamb, the slain Lamb, who holds the scroll, the Lion of Judah, who sacrificed himself to be victorious. It's the slain Lamb who holds the scroll of history. Now, though Billy Graham might not have got some dates right there in his early years, I do agree with his explanation in his book, Approaching Hoofbeats. This was written about 30 years later. Maybe some maturing had happened. Let me just make sure. Yes, here we go. Behind the universe, there is a power worthy of our praise and of our trust. In spite of rumors to the contrary, we are not creatures abandoned on a, on a planet spinning madly through the universe, lost in galaxies upon galaxies of gaseous flaming suns or burnt-out cinder moons. We are the children of a great and wonderful God who even now sits in power, accomplishing His purposes in His creation. 
The revelation is carefully calculated to restore and renew hope. I said to someone this morning, as we read through these passages, if you're not sensing that, if you're not sensing that renewed hope, a restoration, a deeper love of Jesus, then we're reading this wrong. As we continue on into chapter 6, we see the fifth seal opened. It's the Lamb again. And we learn that even though the Lamb holds the scroll, the riders, affect the church. Listen to the word of the Lord. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, And they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Followers of Jesus will suffer just like he did. This is clear. Now imagine, imagine being a part of this early church. This is written so early that they, they know the martyrs who had recently been killed by the empire for not giving in to the worship of Caesar, as we've talked about, for not just going along with the feasts in the temple worship, even when it was just a part of the business. Maybe some of them had lost their businesses as part of that. Some of them killed. For not denying their faith when questioned, but remaining true to the Lamb. Imagine being a part of that early church. And then you hear this read out. The fifth seal reveals the voices of those that they knew. Their moms and their dads. Their brothers and sisters. Their children. Calling out for justice. God, when will you act? And I'm sure it was a common question among the early church as they underwent a horrible persecution. And it's one that's been repeated for centuries. You might think back to some psalms. Many would sing the psalms in their worship all the time. And Psalm 13, it wonders the same thing. How long, O Lord? How long? But we can't forget the answer of the psalmist. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My love will rejoice in your salvation. Now the answers that the martyrs get when they ask how long is that they are given the white robe. Remember, we've seen the symbols of the right robe promised in the letters to the churches and those, the 24 around the throne, a symbol of endurance, of purity, and victory through their sacrifice, through their martyrdom. They had been victorious just as the Lamb had by sacrifice, not by overcoming with power, 
but by giving up of their life. Death is not the end. And then they are told the words that the hearers of Revelation would have to wrestle with. They were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. The reality is that those listeners in the early church might be given the privilege of martyrdom as well to join in the sacrifice of their Lord. The clash of God's kingdom coming in Jesus comes up against the horsemen. The powers of greed, power, war, death, and the result of this clash of the kingdoms should not be surprising. If the Son of God himself suffered and died to be victorious, why should we not follow him into that same fate? And we might say, what is the full number? Well, if we're still waiting for it, we haven't reached it in 2,000 years. Does God have a certain number in mind? Well, some might be quick with an answer for you on that. They might say, well, yeah, if you read this and read that, then here, here it is. When we get to this number, but again, they might have to cross that out when that number is reached in some way. Be wary of quick answers with such a strong confidence. The Scripture does not give us an answer. It tells us to trust in the Lamb. Once again, as the psalmist says, to trust in God's steadfast love and rejoice in the hope we have. This is the hope of Jesus. Of course, there's two more seals. Okay, we've got through five. There's seven seals. There's two more seals to be opened on the scroll. And you're wondering, okay, pastor, how long are we going to be? Don't worry. The seventh is going to have to wait for two weeks as chapter 7 is an interlude. And I'll explain that more when we get to that, how that works in the outline of Revelation. It's something we'll see again as John uses a specific system to outline this vision he gives. And I'm excited uh, for next week when, uh, when Dan Watt, who was leading us in worship, will give us uh, chapter 7, this interlude. He's going to preach on that next week. There is one more main point here, though, for us to take a look at today as we go into this next and final bit of this passage. That there will be justice. The sixth seal, the final two, the sixth, is the one example of that justice. So listen once again to the word of the Lord. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. 
For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Who can stand? Now, if any part of these seals points to the end, to something that is in the future, this may be it. Apart from what happens when the seventh seal opens, and we'll look at that later. Let me remind you that even if the horsemen are riding, it is the Lamb who holds the scroll. Let's not forget that. Some early church theologians would state clearly that this speaks of the earthquake and this darkening sky that happened when Jesus died on the cross, the result of which is the victory of the Lamb. And at some point, His justice will fully come. But in some ways, I think that's little comfort to these would-be martyrs of the early church that John is writing down these visions for with the heart of a pastor. They would hear this and they would know that God is going to deal with empire, with the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, all those people that had abused them. And they'd have a sense of justice and a hope for things being made right, finally, for those that they'd lost and maybe for their own losses too. Until they heard the next phrase there, Did you hear it? And everyone else, both slave and free. This isn't just the rich and the mighty that fall. Do you remember the imperial prophetic letters written to the seven churches? Let's not forget the context of these visions that that John is having. They were clear that many in the early church were compromising with the empire for their own comfort and quite likely at the expense of others. In Matthew 7, Jesus himself says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's important. There is a check here that we're not being complacent, that we're not just going along with empire, even though we're saying, well, Jesus is Lord, but I can get away with this and this and this in my life. Theologian Craig Costner says says it like this. Instead of offering an explanation for evil, visions like those in Revelation 6 address listeners as a form of proclamation that is designed to bring repentance and faith, the visions are designed to unsettle complacent readers like those at Sardis and Laodicea, referring back to those letters, who may be lulled into a false sense of security by social and economic conditions that are favorable to them. The visions remind such readers that power ultimately belongs to God. Yes, there is courage, hope, and encouragement offered, but also a call to ensure that they are truly living in the abundant life that Jesus offers and not turning to the comfort of the abusive life of the horsemen. 
We sang earlier, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And I think we must all admit this is something that we strive toward. Something to strive toward, to learn, to surrender to. But we can be honest, there are times when we trust in other things. And we need sometimes a vision like this to remind us to live in the love and life of Jesus. Those under judgment in the vision call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Who can withstand the great day of their wrath? There were a couple of major earthquakes in ancient Turkey in the next years, just after John's writing. And I wonder if each time one hit, they were wondering, is this the final one? Uh Uh-oh, is this the end? Hide us, here comes the end. In fact, this image is of the earthquakes in Turkey just since 1900. The number of earthquakes. That's that's the, the area of the seven churches right there. So you get a sense of how many earthquakes they were living with. Or did they understand that this vision was not about predicting the future as much as it was being inspired to live in the present, faithfully following the Lamb, regardless of what was going on around them. In each, in each of our lives, in the life of the earth itself, we face this choice and the consequences. Daryl Johnson, a favorite preacher, pastor, says this. The apocalyptic movies, both secular and religious, have it wrong. The end is not caused by some meteor coming from the sky and causing havoc. The end is caused by God finally saying, you want to be your own God? Okay, be God. I will step back and let you try to hold it all together since we cannot. It all disintegrates. What is finally, that is finally what the wrath of God, the wrath of the Lamb is. Not the throwing of thunderbolts, but finally letting us have our way. No wonder the cry, who is able to stand? As we realize how we treated the world, we begin to to realize it may not last. I saw this meme recently, another end is near, where they have... The end is near, the Bible and global warming. Science and religion finally agree. (laughs) The end is near. Even Billy Graham began to change his tune as he grew older. This is my last quote for today, so we're getting near the end. Hang on. He says this. We cannot simply mourn the fate of the earth. We cannot go pretending that someone else is guilty for its current disastrous state. We cannot act as though we are helpless to work for the world's renewal. We must do what we can, even though we know that God's ultimate plan is the making of a new earth and a new heaven. Signs indicate that the end of the age is near, yet there is not certainty. It may be several generations from now. I think Billy would agree. Though it seems the horsemen are riding, it is the Lamb who holds the scroll. There will be justice coming for all, for all who have abused others for their own benefit, 
who have decided not to live in the love of God sacrificially as the Lamb has shown us how. And how we act now matters. How we love our neighbor matters. Who can stand? Well, the vision tells us much more clearly in chapter 7, and I'm excited to hear what Dan has to say about that next week. But as we end, let me bring us back to the main point of this book, this letter, this vision, this revelation. Can you see Jesus? He is the slain lamb. He is the one holding the scroll through it all. He is the one opening the seals. And perhaps this vision will inspire you to trust him more in the midst of whatever you are facing, whatever pressures are on you in this new year. Can we turn back to him instead of trying to run our lives our own way and not his way? We all need to recognize that though the horses are running, at times through our own hearts even, it's Jesus who we can turn to. So I encourage you not to get caught up in analyzing this revelation as a year end, as an end of times calculator and then mess, miss the message that Jesus has for us, that we can trust our King who is the Lion and the Lamb. And He will come again, but in the meantime, He's called us to follow Him sacrificially for the sake of others. So we're going to sing again as we close our service, asking our King of Heaven to come to us now. And we can sing this each and every day of this year that he comes to us each day, as well as ultimately to bring his kingdom to fulfillment. So let's pray, and then we'll sing together. Jesus, we ask that you would show us a fresh vision of you, that you are the lamb, the lamb upon the throne who gave, who gave himself sacrificially for all of us and for those who have yet to come to know you. And that we are to live out our lives sacrificially like you, even, even if these visions are coming true around us. And we ask that you would come to us fresh anew today, tomorrow, throughout this year, and ultimately that you would come to bring everything back to rights. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I invite you to stay standing for a closing blessing and benediction. As you go from this service, go knowing that the slain lamb has come for you to bring his life and his love 
into your daily routine, into whatever you're struggling with. That Jesus offers his abundant life in the midst of the riding horsemen. So go in that peace, in that knowledge, and in the love of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.